Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, hello to everyone out there in podcast land. I am not sure if podcast land is an actual thing, but at least in my mind, it's a thing. So I know since this is never live that the only way you're listening to this is through podcast. So I just want to thank you for listening. It's been great hearing from everyone on the feedback on different episodes. And I've enjoyed trying to put out some, some episodes on different issues, some of them quite controversial. And it's always good to hear feedback from people who are enjoying the thought process, even when people don't agree with me. I know it's shocking. A lot of people don't agree with me on absolutely everything that I believe or that I put out on the podcast, but I still try to get up in the morning and survive somehow, Uh, but that's okay. That's okay. In fact, I don't expect everyone, nor would I want everyone to agree with me on everything, but it's just a lot of fun to work through some of these issues together, and I'm thankful that a lot of you have reached out and expressed your appreciation for going through some of these things. And I want to continue doing that. One of the episodes that I want to try to go through today is this well-known concept in Christian circles of abstaining from all appearance of evil. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard this phrase utilized. It comes from the King James Version of 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. It's a short verse. It's easy to remember. And growing up, I always heard this utilized in a way where there's a communication that Christians are held to a higher standard above just what is right or wrong. So for example, as a believer, we know that it's wrong to steal. Uh, But in avoiding every appearance of evil, you would want to avoid any kind of situation where somebody might even be able to think that you're stealing. And so we want as Christians to avoid things that have the appearance of being evil in someone else's eyes. That's typically how it's phrased. In fact, I ran a quick DuckDuckGo search and this is a very common interpretation of this verse. And on one of the first hits that I had on Renner.org, I don't know anything about the website, don't know anything about the interpreter, but I was just reading his interpretation of this and I thought it would be helpful to read one of the paragraphs here. Uh, he's talking about this verse abstaining from every or all appearance of evil. And he says this, the, the word appearance is the Greek ados a word that is only used five times in the New Testament, but it depicts in outward form visible appearance, a likeness, or resemblance of something. Therefore, Paul was telling us it doesn't matter what you think or what you know to be true. What matters is what appears to be true in the eyes of others. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Therefore, what Paul is telling us is it doesn't matter what you think or what you know to be true. But what matters is what appears to be true in the eyes of others. Even if there's a small chance that someone may mistake your actions as evil, or if what you do even resembles something evil or wrong, you need to stay as far away from it as you possibly can. End quote. So this is a very common interpretation. And if this interpretation is correct, 
it would definitely change things in how we as Christians should operate because that would hold us to a standard of trying to discern or understand what different groups of people perceive as right or wrong. And just by way of some examples, think about the fact that we have such a high Muslim population in the world. Well, they have a different standard of good and evil than Christians, and they would have standards, for example, of, let's say, wearing a hijab. So would we as Christians say, okay, all of our women need to wear hijabs because the Muslim community views that as good and people who don't do that, it, it's, I mean, we're, we're looking like we just have a, uh, disregard for, for what is, what is good in their eyes and we would be viewed as inferior or having the appearance of evil. Some people would say that. Or what about something, something even less religious, uh, about going to a movie theater? If you go to a movie theater, is, is it possible that somebody would say, wow, he's going there. Um, maybe he's looking at a rated R movie because Christians should never view rated R movies. That's the viewpoint of some individuals. Um, and so if you think that would ever, going to a movie theater ever be okay? Because there is a select portion of individuals who would say, no, that is not, um, okay to go to a movie theater. Or actually, I remember my parents telling me when I was growing up that, uh, some people, and this was shocking to me as a kid because I loved playing games and I, I would me remember playing card games with my brothers and friends and my parents actually forbade me from bringing uh, cards to church uh, a couple times because they said that there were people at church who actually believed playing cards was a sin because cards are associated with gambling. And so there's an appearance of evil with regard to that. Now, my parents weren't saying they believed that, but they were saying that other people did that and we didn't want to needlessly offend them, um, which is a different issue that we'll talk about. But if I'm governing my life that way, I could say, oh, I don't, I need to not play cards ever. I need to never go to a movie theater because those could have an appearance of evil involved. And so it's, it's a very common thing. It's, it's very popular in fundamentalist, uh, circles, conservative Christian circles. And I think it's, it's mainly based on this verse. And I think this verse has been misunderstood largely because of the translation of the King James. And I think that is evident when we look at a lot of the other newer translations. Now I should say that some people use this verse as evidence of some sort of conspiracy of the newer translations changing the word of God because the King James version says abstain all from all appearance of evil. The new King James says abstain from every form of evil. The ESV says abstain from every form of evil. The Holman Christian says stay away from every kind of evil. NIV says reject every kind of evil. And the new American standard says abstain from every form of evil. So, Pretty much everything, even the New King James, apart from the KJV, utilizes some word form or kind. And so some King James only advocates would say, well, this is evidence of, you know, people trying to subvert the will of God and change things. Well, that's not really what's going on here. Really, it's, it's all related to the, the word for appearance or for form. How do we interpret that? It's not some sort of subversive attempt to change the meaning 
um, there's actually a big interpretive issue here. And so that's what's at stake in thinking through this idea and trying to interpret it. Before we can apply it, we need to interpret it correctly and think through the issues. Now, I do want to just for a second defend the King James Version reading. Okay, so I, I want to try to give the evidence here as to why they're doing what they're doing. It's not as if the King James translators just totally missed the boat here or are terrible. They were great scholars, especially for their time. I mean, pre-computers, for all the the lack of manuscripts that they had, they did a fantastic job. And so one thing to understand is that the word that is translated as appearance in the KJV or in the ESV and others, it's translated as form. The word ados in the Greek does have the nu- uh, nuance of appearance, some sort of superficial uh, appearance um, outward uh, look. And this is exemplified by other passages in scripture. It's not used often in the New Testament, but it is used, for example, in Luke 9, 29, pretty much without a doubt, you have to translate it this way. It says, as he was praying, the appearance, that's the word ados there, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So there's talking about Jesus on the transfiguration, and it's talking about how he's praying, and then the way that he appears, the ados, uh, alters his face, the appearance of his face alters, and his his clothing becomes uh, dazzling white. Now, when we think through that, uh, I I think it's pretty obvious that that's how it should be taken in context there. I think that while we're examining that, there's no no problem. In fact, Ados commonly can be translated as appearance. So it's not as if this the word isn't utilized this way. And listeners of this podcast will be reminded that typically one of the things that I've tried to stress in the past is that words don't just have one meaning. That's not how language works in any language. There are nuances of language and the same word could mean something in one context and something else in another context. And that's totally fine. That's just how language works. And so same thing here. It can take the idea of appearance in some instances. And in fact, there may be indication that some early Christian sources did take it that way. Uh, although not uh, citing exactly um, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, the didache, which is a there's some debate about when when it should be uh, dated, but it's probably dated in the second century sometime, probably very early second century. So it's a very early Christian source. And in chapter 3, verse 1 of the Didache, you have uh, it written, My child, flee from every evil and everything that resembleth it. So you have their instruction to flee from evil and also to flee from things that resemble evil. Now, that seems very similar to an interpretation of how the KJV might be interpreted, where the believer is not just to flee or abstain from evil, but also things that resemble evil. So that is an early attestation of this kind of interpretation, this kind of idea. Of course, this is maybe even a hundred years after the writing of first Thessalonians. So that's that, that is one of the difficulties is people's interpretations and theology can change a lot in a hundred years. 
And so it, it would also be natural in religious circles to put uh, a fence around the the fence, as it were. That's what Jesus actually got after the Pharisees for doing, because the Pharisees also were prone to create these rules upon the law itself. So the law was there, but then the Pharisees had their traditions in order to go beyond what the law said. So all that to say, there is reason uh, for the KJV to translate it as all appearance of evil, but I don't think that's the best way to translate it. So why should it be translated as form or kind, rather? Well, the first thing to mention, as I already talked about, is the nuance of the term, the semantic range, the semantic domain of the term ADOS, does, can communicate appearance, to be sure, but it also, very commonly, also will take the idea of form or kind. Uh, there's a couple examples from other uh, Greek literature. It's not utilized often in the New Testament, like I mentioned. You only have those five occurrences. But in Herodotus, for example, in his histories, he mentions that it was at that point that they invented the games of dice and knuckle bones and ball and all other forms of game except dice. So the that word forms of game is ados there. Uh, and so when we think of how Herodotus is using this, it's very clear you can't say appearance of a game. That just wouldn't make sense. You know, he's talking about a specific form or kind of a game, and that's that's typical. Uh, also, Josephus, who again was just before the writing, or he was essentially contemporaneous with uh, the New Testament. He would have been um, in the early uh, centuries. Uh, he's, he's often viewed as... Uh, contemporary with New Testament Koine writing, uh, he has a description about Manasseh when he's writing historically, and he said about Manasseh that Manasseh directed himself to every form of evil. And there again, he uses ADOS, and that's from his Antiquities uh, 10.37. And there too, you can't really take that as appearance. It's not as if Manasseh was was just trying to appear as evil. No, he was participating in every form or kind of evil. So this word ados does is well attested, does have this nuance of meaning form or kind. And I think the context of First Thessalonians 5 would indicate this would be the most natural nuance here. Because 5.22 isn't isolated, but it needs to be linked with 5.21. So structurally, and this is, I think, I didn't check every commentary, but I did uh, glance through a few just to make sure that the uh, the main commentaries would agree on this. And when we read uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, we're, we're given the command, Paul gives the command to the Thessalonians to test everything. And that idea of testing everything leads to two results, and that's the end of 21 and then 22. So you test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So I think it goes well together in Paul's command to test things. He reminds them, and when you're testing things, you're discerning what is good and evil. You hold fast, you cling to that which is good, and that which is evil, you abstain from, you remove yourself from. Like you don't, you don't hold fast to that, obviously. But it would be a little odd to have a a imperfect parallelism where you're saying you hold fast to what is good, 
but then you also just don't you reject everything that might even be thought of evil as from anybody's perspective so that is much less likely to understand especially since the nuance of this form kind or sort is well attested in other greek literature having having that perfect nuance so understanding that uh nuance that that context of first thessalonians 5 uh, I think the the proper understanding is basically Paul. Paul is saying here not just generically abstaining from evil, although he could say that and that would have been fine. But he, really, what he's saying here is abstain from every manifestation of evil, whatever whatever form evil takes, whether it's uh, lust, whether it's whether it's greed, whether it's pride, whether it's envy, whether it's you know you, you go down the list, whatever form evil takes, you have to reject that as a believer. Uh, you can't just reject certain uh, forms of evil. And so he's going through that, laying that out uh, very well. So if that's the case, as most English translations would indicate, then we have a, a different meaning uh, in contrast to what the KJV would say. Uh, it's not as if we are attempting to abstain from anything that might be viewed as evil by anybody else, you can imagine just how ridiculous that standard would be. And that would actually be very, uh, very much, I think, against the teaching of the New Testament, how uh, the standard for believers is is freedom, uh, that there's a, there's a tremendous freedom in the spirit to live uh, by conscience uh, in, in obeying the Lord, being faithful to what scripture talks about, uh, and following that ethos of the law, if you want to put it that way. But that being said, so if if you're not convinced, so be it. But assuming that this new interpretation, or maybe it's not new, but that this alternative interpretation to the KJV is correct, how would we apply this then to the Christian life? And I think this is, this is you know, really important. Uh, for example, I was talking to my dad recently about, you know, this concept uh, and I brought up the example because as I was growing up, I remember hearing uh, preachers say, for example, they would never enter a bar because it, there was if somebody saw you entering into a bar, your testimony would be shot and you would you would have no ability to witness and talk about, you know, the purity of the gospel and all that. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm not really inclined at all to go into a bar. OK, I just don't really I'm not at all. Uh, inclined that way, I uh, would have nothing to do there, um, unless maybe they were playing chess at a chess tournament there or something. I don't know. Uh, so, so that's not something that I would particularly struggle. But as an example, it, it's helpful to to think through this. Uh, sure, you you would have an appearance that maybe something is going on. Maybe you're there, but as uh, my dad pointed out. Um, there, there could be opportunities uh, as as believers where going into a bar to perhaps uh, rescue a delinquent Christian, um, somebody who's who's not uh, not fulfilling their responsibility to their family, or they're just like discouraged. And so, as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, you need to go in there and say, "Hey, you know what, brother, sister, let's let's go. Like, I'm here to help. All that." Well, sure, that would be fine. I mean, there, there's no objective uh, wrong in that, uh, that there, there's freedom, obviously, to do that. And there, 
there would be nothing inappropriate of that. There's, there's lots of applications of this where a lot of times as Christians, we would hold ourselves to standards that are above what scripture talks about. And uh, I think there is often elements within this of people pleasing, uh, which is sin in and of itself, a different kind of sin, but where we elevate the opinions of others over what the standard of scripture actually is. And so just because there's a certain group that thinks something is right or wrong, we act in a certain way because we want to avoid uh, their the, the, the shadiness of their displeasure, as it were. We want to make sure we're in their good graces. And so it becomes a people-pleasing process. And that can be dangerous. Uh, and so there are, there are actually negative applications to this, why we want to interpret this verse correctly, because it does give us a freedom to live for Christ. As Romans 14, uh, very explicitly talks about in matters of freedom, um, who are you to judge the slave of another? To his own master, he rises or falls. In other words, Christ is going to be the ultimate judge of Christians. And so we as believers need to be careful about judging each other in matters that are not explicitly spelled out in scripture. So I think that's very important and hopefully helpful to think through with regard to that. But there's a couple other things that I want to talk about with regard to this, because as I'm thinking about it, I, I understand that there's also temptations here, because if this is true, there, if, well, let, let's put it this way. There, there are considerations here that go beyond just this verse, right? And I think one of the major things that Peter warns believers about in 1 Peter 2 is not using freedom as a cover-up for evil. So, for example, Peter warns believers, he's saying, live as people who are free, amen and amen, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So in other words, it is a propensity of people who are tainted by the flesh to rationalize and excuse acting a certain way under the guise of freedom. And so this is something that wise Christians would do well to consider is that you that there may be a propensity to rationalize acting a certain way or embracing a certain sin, as it were, uh, under the guise of freedom. And so we would want to be very careful, uh, to not fall prey to that. And, and again, this is, this is the difficulty because it largely deals with motivation here. And as human beings, I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, we can't read, there's no teleprompter that's saying what's going through my heart or what's going through my mind. In fact, it's kind of interesting because sometimes we don't even read our hearts very well, our own hearts. Uh, so sometimes we don't even understand our motivation. And so that just is cause for caution and, and humility before the Lord and and just asking God to reveal anything if there's anything there to our own hearts, because that that's the thought process that we need to follow. And maybe we're trying to uh, do something that we ought not to uh, under the guise of freedom, and maybe we have the wrong motives. And so we ask God, Lord, please search me, know me, try my heart, see if there be any wicked way within me. We pray those things. We search those things. That's That's very, very important because we don't ever want to be in the process of rationalizing our own sin. Uh, and so it's, it's a fair warning. Absolutely. On top of that, though, there's also 
this con- this concept of conscience, which we've talked about just a little bit, but I think it's helpful to put a a very strong plug in here that no one should ever go against their conscience. I mean, Romans 14, 23 is very clear on that subject. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So in other words, if you do not have confidence in your action, if your conscience is saying, well, maybe this is wrong, you don't do that. You can't sin against your conscience that way. The conscience is God's gift to you as a as a protection um, to guard you from doing things that you ought not to do. And so if your conscience is telling you to stop, you have to follow that until your conscience becomes more trained uh, or perhaps your conscience is well-trained already and is telling you this is not something that you ought to do. So even if something's not inherently evil or bad and your conscience says, I don't know if I should do this, then you follow the conscience. There's an additional aspect to that where there's certain freedoms that believers need to avoid because it might cause a fellow believer to participate in that action and thus violate their conscience. So, I mean, Romans 14, we already mentioned that. That actually talks about that in verse 21, uh, where Paul says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother to stumble. So in other words, if, and here's the key though, uh, what he's saying is that if by your action you're encouraging somebody else to do the same action and thus violate their conscience, that's a problem. Same principle in 1 Corinthians 8, 12 through 13, where Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So the, the point is, you don't want to just totally disregard somebody else's conscience and say, it doesn't matter what I do. You know, I'm going to do this. Come on, go ahead and do it anyway. It doesn't matter. And you cause your brother to violate their conscience while well, you've sinned as well. Now, there, I've seen this principle pushed far too, too much in churches as well, where, you know, you have, I've, I've, argue, I've seen people argue, uh, against, you know, having facial hair or things like that for whatever reason. And, you know, I think perceptively it's important at that point to say, well, does my having facial hair uh, tempt you to grow facial hair, which would be against your conscience. And of course not. That's, that's not what their point was. Their point was, I just don't want you to have it because it offends me to see you having facial hair. Well, that's a different issue. Uh, so there is an important aspect here of we care about our brothers and sisters and we don't want to, uh, bring, um, bring them into a place where they would violate their conscience. Now, that being said too, I think lastly, the one thing that I'd throw in here is that there is also just a generic category of wisdom. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not really sure how to label this other than just saying a generic category of wisdom, because there may be things that you're completely free to do, and it's not going to violate anyone's conscience. And yet, you would be wise not to participate in it because of the potential ramifications or the timing of the issue. Uh, for, for example, um, you know, I, I was just thinking about Nehemiah 6, for example. This came to mind as I was um, thinking through this earlier. And in Nehemiah 6, you have um, Sanballat and Tobiah. They hire a false prophet, basically. And the false prophet says, hey, people are going to try to kill you, which actually may be kind of true in the context. It seems like that's not beyond the realm of possibility. But he tries to convince Nehemiah to go into hiding. And Nehemiah... and 
But is it wrong inherently to go into hiding if somebody's trying to kill you? I don't think so. I think that that's uh, okay. I I don't think that that's wrong to run when your life is at stake, you know, to hide uh, as it might be. But Nehemiah knew that this was a plot. He perceived that it was a plot to try to discredit him as a leader because if he goes into hiding, then everyone would start spreading rumors saying, well, Nehemiah doesn't care about you. He, he doesn't want to see the work. He's only the work completed. He's only concerned about himself. So it does seem like Nehemiah is perceiving the fact that this is deeper than just my action. And even though I would have the freedom to do this, I can't do that for the sake of the whole situation. So there is an element of wisdom where you might not do something because of the consequences that come from that or because you don't want to needlessly offend somebody. For example, uh, the, the workers in that case might have been offended that Nehemiah is trying to save his skin by hiding or whatever. So there are wisdom elements involved too, where you, you don't just, you are not just brashly acting without thinking of the consequences or whatever. There are certain things where I would, I completely would have the freedom to act, to enjoy something, some, some thing, some, some element of life, as it were, something good that God has created. But it's just not right for timing wise or the group of people would, would not enjoy that. And so there is wisdom elements involved in that. And I think, I think that's appropriate. I think that that's something that uh, ought to be considered and might look different in many different situations. But, but that is part of what it means to be a Christian. And a godly mature Christian understands that there is a lot of wisdom involved in living. There's not a whole bunch of rules, laws, and regulations that govern the ins and outs of, of life. There's a lot of freedom. But that doesn't mean that we just live however we want without considering that. No, the wise Christian understands that there are elements that should control his life even beyond just the element of whether something is morally acceptable or not. So in the end of uh, all this, I don't think 1 Thessalonians 5.22 should be used to create some sort of standard, legalistic standard to which Christians need to adhere uh, I think that it's better translated as every sort or kind of evil, not just what would appear to be evil. And yet at the same time, like we were talking about here at the end, I do think it would be a huge mistake if that was just used as an excuse by Christians to just live however they wanted without regard at all for some of the consequences or for the optics of how certain things would look. I think that those things should be considered. And that's not as as a mandate uh, from 1 Thessalonians 5, but I think that is a wisdom issue that there are there are going to be certain problems perhaps that are better addressed at other times. But then again, there are also times when plowing forward and uh, having a good example for the freedom that we have in Christ is appropriate as well. So at the end of the day, it hopefully will just drive us to our knees praying and asking God for wisdom and how we live uh, our daily lives because that's... Uh, it is really uh, challenging at times. So I hope this has been thought-provoking and helpful. If not, you can always just delete it now that you've listened to it. So uh, in any case, I always like hearing from you. If you want to reach out, you can reach out through the contact form on my website, petergaming.com. You can also access a variety of blog articles I've written there. You can also visit the Shepherds Theological Seminary website at shepherds.edu. The fall semester is getting ready to start in the second week of August, so if you're interested in auditing classes or checking out any of the programs, you can look uh, there on the website. 
Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.